Jesus, you are holy, unstained. You are separated from sinners. You are exalted above the heavens. You are innocent. You are everything no man could ever be. Everything and all that we needed, Lord, in our depravity and sin to provide for us a sufficient sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God on our account and to purchase our eternal life. Lord, if you remained on this earth as a mere high priest like men, if you were to pass along your priesthood to another, we would have no redemption. But because you ever lived to make intercession for us, and because you were ascended into the heavenlies, and because you satisfied perfectly and completely all the prerequisites for our salvation, we have a hope that does not waver and does not faint. It does not fail or fade, but endures in Christ eternally. And so as we look to your scriptures, the record of, went before the, of what went before that great moment of incarnation, the reality, Lord, that you proclaimed through the mouth of those who went before, what you prefigured in the office of David, what you unfolded through the mouths of your prophets and recorded in Holy Scripture by your Spirit breathing through your ministers of old, I pray that the reverence and fear that is due the revelation of Jesus Christ would flood into our hearts this day and that the encouragement and exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of our call would imbibe our decisions even this week as we leave this place. Draw our attention unwaveringly to your word this morning, we pray. And we rely on you and you alone, Holy Spirit, to lead and guide us into all truth. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. What a great privilege it is to share in the scriptures this morning, to open up the word of God and to pray that the Lord would illuminate it to each of our hearts. Turn with me in your scriptures to Psalm 57, if you would. Psalm chapter 57. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. This, the title of my message today is Cave Song. Cave Song, simply titled, A Song that David wrote when he was under duress and when he was in exile in likely, most probably, the cave of Adullam. The same cave that was the occasion for the psalm that we studied last month, Psalm 56, where we read in the title to the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And shortly after that event, David took refuge in Adullam. But there the Lord met him met him with provision that was unexpected. And we saw an argument from the greater context of Scripture, namely 1 Samuel 21, 22, and this morning we'll touch on a few verses into 24, that these formative moments where in the flesh it would have seen all hope was lost, God was rebuilding a nation, equipping and anointing his servant David, and soon we would have a new Israel with a new king on a new foundation, and that foundation, the rock of the Word of Christ. So stand with me if you would and let us read Psalm 57 this morning. Psalm 57. These 11 verses come to us under this title, To the Choir Master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. 
till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, Selah. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. Verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Verse 6. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the infallible word of Christ. You may be seated. In this cave song, as David has written his thoughts and praises while he is on the run yet once again, we have in the crucible of this affliction some of the purest words that we can employ in our own worship even this day we find ourselves relating at all to the circumstances of David himself. Well, more so than the importance of whether or not we can relate to David, we're reminded that in this psalm we're reading of David who would have a son. Yes, indeed, the son of David is the real object that this song looks forward to, Jesus Christ himself. At the close of this message, we will draw some of those connections from the old covenant to the new. And in God's providence, we will find that even Hebrews 7, our text last week, verse 26, draws amazing connections between these two portions in Holy Scripture, separated by centuries, even millennia, yet drawn together by the Holy Spirit in the concept of the glory of God in the provision that He supplies for His anointed one. This morning, I would like to read to you a quote by way of introduction. Augustus Thullock, I believe is his name. He summarized his own thoughts as to the value and virtues of Psalm 57 as follows, quote, A hard and ungrateful heart beholds even in prosperity only isolated drops of divine grace. Again, that first phrase. A hard and ungrateful heart beholds even in, in prosperity only isolated drops of divine grace. But a grateful one like David Though chased by persecutors and striking the harp in the gloom of the cave, looks upon the mercy and faithfulness of God as a mighty ocean, waving and heaving from the earth to the clouds, and from the clouds to the earth again. That is a powerful point of perspective. In other words, Augustus Thullock's Instruction and exhortation taken from the theme and from the content of Psalm 57 to us is this. We, if we walk in the normal, everyday, fleshly existence, 
are not very prone to give thankfulness to the Lord even when we're enjoying relative peace and prosperity. And certainly in our day in this society and in this land, these words are a stinging rebuke. Seldom in the history of the great church of Jesus Christ have we ever enjoyed the kind of freedom and relative prosperity that we have in our land this day. Yet how many of us are like the nine lepers that did not return to Christ to thank Him for deliverance from sin and for satisfaction of our every daily need, our daily bread and more overflowing. More of us, even though we live in relative ease and luxury, are more given to taking these blessings for granted as if we somehow deserve them rather than crying out in grateful hearts. Yet here in Psalm 57 we have David, under persecution, anointed to be king, yet the whole world seems against him. He's had to escape the Philistines and now he has to run from Saul yet again. He doesn't have a place where he can lay his head. There's no comfortable place of rest. Instead, he finds himself once again in a cave, cold, dark, dank, surrounded by outlaws, fugitives, sleepless nights, fitful rest at best. Wondering if his next step won't be into an ambush and a trap and he'll find a spear through his side. Yet even under these conditions, David, after explaining and confessing his great need and desperation to the Lord and to those who would sing alongside him, closes his words with this exalted, glorious note of thankfulness and praise. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the, all the earth. Well, this is certainly the result, these final words of David's prayers and meditation. There was nevertheless a process, a struggle, a fight, if you will, for even David to maintain and grasp, a grasp and to hold this perspective. Psalm 57 joins a few other psalms that are identified with similar language in their title. Psalm 58 Psalm 59, the two that follow, and then later Psalm 75, they all share this similar note in the title to the choir master, according to do not destroy. Those three words, do not destroy, are significant in some way to set apart this category of miktam or psalm. It seems that there is an anguish and an association with this imminent danger that identifies this particular psalm as one that was tempered and hammered to exquisite quality in the fires of adversity and affliction. Spurgeon, as I read his commentary, he imagined David beginning his song and singing these odes and these worship to the Lord deep in the recesses of this cave. Quick historical note for you, there are many caves that have been explored through the centuries in the area around where David would have been running from Saul and in what is modern-day Israel, and some of them are quite extensive indeed caverns and labyrinths of natural and uh, um, uh, cavernous areas and deep crevices far within the reaches of different mountainous areas. And there are caves that could hold as many as a thousand people, we are told. So if you had the uh, wherewithal to navigate these places, you could likely find safety. Spurgeon imagines David deep in the recesses of one of these natural mazes, labyrinths, singing a mournful melody crying out in desperation and anguish, a psalm of lament. He imagines him walking to a distant light, though, and as he approaches the entrance of the cave, it's as if the rays of hope of the sunshine 
hid his face and lift his countenance. He begins his song despairingly in the dark depths of the cave of retreat. He successively emerges from its shadows until the rays of jubilant faith lift his countenance at the mouth of his bunker. He closes his song by raising a melody heavenward of triumphant praise. What a beautiful picture um, to let our imagination run with some of the background history and narrative that attended the authorship of these very words. Let me give you a heading and three points this morning. Our heading for today's message primarily is this thought, David's path from affliction to awakening is marked by different David's path from affliction to awakening is marked by three things generally, and then we'll expound. First of all, desperation. He is certainly and honestly despairing of his life and crying out for salvation and intervention from the Lord. Secondly, David's path from affliction to awakening is marked by devices. Devices, schemes of the evil one, weapons formed against him, but like the new covenant promises, they do not prosper. And in fact, God uses them in providential and sovereign ways to preserve his servant and to destroy his enemies. Thirdly, this morning, David's path from affliction to awakening is marked by a doxology, which is like a summary worshipful song of praise that builds towards the end as his victorious, triumphant ode to the Lord is offered in worshipful thanksgiving. So first of all, this morning, let us return to our text. Reading the first three verses, which are marked off by the first Selah, that is 57.1 through 3a, and then we'll expound. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame Him who tramples on me. Selah. Again, David's path from adversity or affliction to awakening is marked by this very honest and desperate plea and cry. First of all, for mercy. If we look at Hebrew poetry, as we've often taken note, we find parallels, things stated twice, sometimes verbatim, sometimes in similar language. Under this note of desperation, David's great need, which he realizes, and is the impetus of his cry of praise and prayer initially, we see parallels that denote priorities, parallels and priorities. Let me just highlight a few. I won't highlight them all, but this will give you again a flavor of some of the structure of this psalm. First of all, we have the second word that is repeated twice in the first phrase. Verse 1, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. When David repeats his request, his entreaty for mercy from the Almighty, this repetition, this parallel in the text, it's his desperation. His cry of absolute helplessness save one avenue of salvation. Absolute desperation save one avenue of hope. And that single way, that single avenue, is the truth and life of God's mercy extended to the lost, to the helpless, to the hopeless, to the sinner. Be merciful to me, O God. Mercy implies that the need that David had, he could not appeal to anything within himself to satisfy 
David, as we know from the greater message of the gospel, like every sinner, had no works on which to stand intrinsically in and of himself to say, rescue me, I have kept my promises to you. David could not rightfully cry on the grounds, rescue me, I am one of the guys who is a good guy, better than the, the others after all. David could not cry out for a grace or, or for help on the basis of grading on the curve or his own works or even the fact that God had anointed him. David knew that that was his sovereignty ultimately and only if he had any hope at all. It was based on the mercy of Almighty God. Psalm 56, the one that preceded 57, is in a similar tone indeed, is it not? I'll remind you, 56.1, what is the cry? Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. Mercy and grace is the basis of David's appeal. Be merciful to this wicked sinner. Intervene, though I do not deserve. Be merciful in my, in my song, hear my cry, for grace, the unmerited favor of God is front and center in these miktoms, these psalms of desperate cries of salvation. Here mercy is echoed twice, mercy, mercy. After mercy, there's a second parallel. These words are slightly different, but the idea is repeated again in verse 1b. David cries, for in you my soul takes refuge, in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. The idea of refuge is repeated twice, but notice where he runs to find it. In you. He is running to his God for safety. Secondly, he says, in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. David recognizes that in Christ and exclusively in him, in his Lord, is safety. The Lord owns the proprietary rights to salvation. There is no hope, no comfort, no safety, no even provisional place of rest and relaxation where we can have the stresses and fears and concerns of this life abated and worse of all, the imminent danger of the next life assured or uh, um, satisfied that we could have hope when we die unless and only, unless we turn to Christ and only in Him, in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. David recognizes that there is nowhere else to turn. Within this cave, he is a sitting duck for his enemies. Unless one thing happens, God sovereignly, by his angels, graciously and mercifully dispatched, surrounds him with the hedge of protection, and only then is he safe within the walls of a guarded fortress that the enemy cannot destroy. Mercy, mercy in you, your wings. Refuge, refuge. And then verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. This final point of parallel I want to bring up to you under in this tone of desperation is steadfast love and faithfulness. It's two ways, or it's a way of repeating the same similar idea. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David has cried in mercy, or unto God's mercy for salvation. He has confessed that it's exclusively in him. 
He has used poetic imagery to describe it like refuge and wings. And now he identifies it specifically as God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. Steadfast love in the original language is the gospel according to the Psalms, the Hesed love of Almighty God. The covenant-keeping compassion that God extends to wicked sinners in providing for them means of atonement and grace. To this, David makes his appeal and also to his faithfulness. Faithfulness underscores his steadfast love and putting the exclamation point of infallible truth on it. He knows that God will never break his covenant and his word will never change. He can bet, he can count on God's promises because they are as true as anything. In fact, they are the foundation of everything. God in his nature and character is the ultimate fixed point of organization, of understanding, of foundation. Indeed, the source, the authority, the power, the sustainer, the creator, the maintainer of this entire universe. So on this basis, if he has forged a way of salvation for the wicked sinner, we know that that door will remain open if we pass through it according to God's prescribed means and it will never slam on our face. Thank you, Lord, for the assurance of salvation in you. David also prays later, and in a related parable, he says in verse 7, as he's crying his heart out in song, he says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. And now what has he done? He has pegged his hope on the steadfastness of the Lord. He has recognized that his security and assurance is in God himself who never changes, and now he has spoken and encouraged his heart to therefore be steadfast. In a phrase, may my heart be as stable as the certainty of the promises from the covenant-keeping God. May my heart be as stable. May anxiety flee away. May the worry and the concern that plagues my feeble mind be banished from the premises of my soul as I consider the surety of the promises of the covenant-keeping God. This is where David runs in his desperation. Where do you run, believer? Where do you go? When you are plagued with the anxieties and the fears, when you are plagued with the uncertain future, when the enemies that surround you appear bigger than the God that is in you for a moment of, in a moment of faithlessness, where do you run? I would encourage you, follow the pattern of Psalm 57. Run to the steadfast has said love of God. Run to His covenant. Saturate your soul on the living water of the gospel. Let, pray that the Spirit would make your mind, your heart, and your soul a sponge to receive that life-giving source and fountain of glorious truth. And as you feast upon Christ, you will find your heart being firmed up, being set on Him alone and on strong footing, and you will find a confidence flowing in to your and a resolve flowing into your heart and soul that makes you stable on the basis of God's unwavering promises. Secondly, under desperation, David's path from affliction to awakening is highlighted by these parallels which illustrate priorities, but also by wings and mercy is the second, uh, 
is the second note of imagery under desperation that I wanted to draw to your attention. Reading again in verse 1, David cries, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. As I'm reading this, turn with me to Exodus 25, if you would. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. This imagery becomes more vivid and dramatic and substantial when we see it pictured actually in tabernacle worship of old. Why does David employ imagery like wings? Well, at first glance, and this is partly true, this is part of it, I'm sure, we look to nature and we see how God has wired instinctively a mother hen, for instance, to gather her chicks. And if a storm comes or if there's any danger at all, those chicks, those little ones, instinctively flock to her side and they take refuge under the shadow of her wings. You have to get through the wings of the mother before you can touch her offspring. So that's a beautiful picture indeed, and I'm sure that is part of it. Also, as we read mercy, we have an understanding basically of what that is, of course. The concept is thoroughly biblical, and it's one that we familiarize ourselves with every time we open the Scriptures. But notice how much deeper and richer this imagery is when we notice what God used symbolically and substantially by way of temple worship or tabernacle worship in the Old to represent these very things. In Exodus 25, verse 20, for instance, we read the following. The cherubim, what are cherubim? Well, they are angels, they have wings. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, verse 22, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. What is described here? What is described here is pictured in the tabernacle, the place of God meeting with His people. There were a number of things that reached their point of confluence symbolically at this very place, the mercy seat, under the wings of the cherubim. This was where the holy God met with sinful men on the basis of shed blood, that sacrificial animal being sprinkled on the altar. This was where mercy was available for the taking of those who submitted and cried out in grace and faith to their God. This was the place where the sinner could find refuge from the ultimate enemy, the hell that his wickedness, infirmity, and sinfulness deserved. This was where he could find protection under the pinions or wings or feathers represented by the cherubim in that glorious picture in the tabernacle. The prophetic power of the mercy seat to display the gospel was there in tangible form for all who understood its value. In Christ, there would be through His shed blood a point of confluence where the wickedness of man would be satisfied in His blood and peace with God was possible 
under His protection at the mercy seat when it was sprinkled with the blood of the one true Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Now David knows, because he is a man of faith, to cry out for refuge in such a place. When he says, Be merciful to me, O God, for in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. David's cry for mercy, David's cry for safety, far transcended his initial cause of concern being surrounded by mere physical enemies. Deeply embedded and woven into the poetry of this glorious worship song is the imagery represented in the tabernacle and fulfilled in Christ. The safety of His wings which cover us on the mercy seat which is sprinkled with the blood of Christ which satisfies the conditions, the favor of the Lord meeting with His people assuring us eternal life so that the last enemy is defeated and we will never again be victim to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Thirdly, under desperation, there is a vantage point that David recognizes as he considers his own position and, the, uh, and his great need for a Savior and where God rests. In verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Verse 3, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David recognizes in this imagery that there is a strategic value to God's exalted position as he describes it in the heavens. God will send from heaven and save me. And David's humble and desperate position trampled under the feet of his enemies. Anyone who is this low, anyone who recognizes his condition as being this desperate, would in the natural be more hopeless than ever, would he not? How will I ever be uh, rescued when I can't even get out from underneath the boots of the enemy who stomp on me over and over again? What good is it when God is in the heavens and I am here downtrodden under these circumstances? Well, instead of being despairing in lack of faith that this great chasm between where God rests in the heavens and where He suffers on earth represents a problem, David sees that there is a strategic vantage point to the Lord's position relative to His own. Because God stands above the pit, He can reach down and pull us up. Because God rests on His throne in heaven, He can command Every grasshopper that is a king or a ruler or an authority or a war machine or a policy or conditions on this life of persecution and suffering, he could command with the snap of his fingers and a thousand, ten thousand lay dead before his right hand. Why? Because he rules and reigns. When we look to God, whose authority and power is pictured in this way, we who tremble and worry and get downtrodden in this life have great hope because he stands in a place well positioned to safely draw us up from the pit of despair and to set our feet on solid rocks again solid foundation again now listen if we look to anything else in this life 
what are we looking to? We are looking to something or someone who is in the pit with us. Oh, this relationship will bring joy back into my life again. Well, if it's not established in a relationship with Christ, it's a relationship that is not strategically positioned to pull us up, but indeed just stands in the same downtrodden place as we are. If we vote for a candidate this election season, we think we'll set our nation aright again. Who are we voting for? Another sinner who shares the same deplorable condition as we do. No Messiah. No. There is only one, and he's exalted in the heavens. He must be and was and is perfect, unstained, innocent. He is the perfect son by oath. He is the one who is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens and only in that place. Do we have an appeal that can actually address, remediate, uh, intervene in our concerns and our captivity right now? Anything else is humanism. It's exalting man to a point and a pedestal, a saying falsely that he can intervene and save us. He cannot. It doesn't matter if he's bound together in the form of an institution, of a government, even our family, our friends, or some hope against hope that circumstances will realign in this life. If they share this pit with us, they are no hope indeed. There is one and only one who can rescue and save. The triune God who rules and reigns from his throne in glory can reach down and save us in our plight. David understands this, and that's why he employs this kind of imagery when he contrasts the, the heavenly places with his earthly condition and finds their great hope of salvation. Second major point this morning David's path from affliction to awakening is marked by devices. Devices, in fact, that the enemy plans to use against the Lord and His anointed, and God turns the tables and use them instead, uses them instead to destroy the wicked. God will send out His steadfast love. We read again the assurance, the confidence of David growing in verse 3 and His faithfulness. Verse 4, though, notes the enemy's arsenal, the conditions that are so frightening on the face of it. My soul is in the midst of lions. It uses, again, these poetic devices to describe the uh, pressures, the danger that he's in. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp as swords. This week, just a timely illustration or application, there was what many would consider, especially if you're a conservative and you want to cling with your last fingernail to the cliff of America's, you know, uh, of safety from America's decline by hoping against hope that a few original constitutionalists will remain on the Supreme Court well, a blow was dealt to those who, who place faith in such a thing this week when we found out that a 79-year-old uh, Supreme Court Justice, Antonin Scalia, is a man like the rest of us. And, he was surprised, and, and they were surprised to find him dead in his residence when he was on vacation just several days ago. Where does this leave us? Does this leave us frightful for who the president right now might replace him with? Does this cause us great concern that our future will now be in the hands of nine robed oligarchs ruling from the bench who will take away our freedoms and usher us into a new dark age of cultural apostasy? 
That may happen. And the enemy's arsenal has a lot of wickedness to be sure. And when we think of things like this as Christians who do not wish to be thrown into the crucible of persecution like our brothers and sisters are in Christ overseas, we imagine the changing circumstances and those in power over us as lions, fiery beasts, children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows looking for every way to jab us with their policies and their laws and to take away the things that we hold precious and dear. And this is the situation that we find ourselves in if we look only to the circumstances. And yes, the enemy has a great arsenal. But let me tell you where David draws his encouragement. Not in the fact that the enemy has such a sophisticated means to destroy the work of God or to come against him. But he says in context, he finds hope in context that the very net that was set to trap him can be turned on the enemy. And the very pit that his enemy dug may be the trap that he himself, that is his enemy, the wicked one, falls in. Henry Ward Beecher compares the repulsive act of cannibalism to the vicious slander and assault of those uh, who would destroy the soul of man if they could. In other words, he looks at this text and he sees that the children of man, their teeth are spears and arrows and their tongues are sharp swords. When you live for Christ, when you stand on His Word alone, when you embrace the exclusive truth of Christianity, you are at least subject to the ridicule, to the mockery, and to the condemnation of a culture that is rejecting Christ at every turn. They will say all manner of evil things against you falsely for Christ's name's sake if you stand uncompromisingly on Christ and His infallible Word. And as you do, it may feel like you are in a crowd of headhunters who spiritually surround you and attack your soul, who would, if they could, take you and raise you up on a pyre, on a stick, and burn you, uh, or uh, utter all kinds of evil against you only to make you their next meal. And it is true that man bites and devours one another in their sin. And he so hates the Lord Jesus before he his situation as an en enemy of him is reversed, that he makes it his aim and goal to turn his face against the Lord and his people. Yet, even in this, even in this situation when we are surrounded by lions and fiery beasts, we need not fear because the enemy's arsenal is in, ultimately, the sovereign hands of God. These devices that the enemy would wield against David and his meager band of followers, they could well, or David foresees circumstances when they will turn, uh, when the situation will be completely reversed. Let me read to you a few verses in the Psalms where we see this established, in fact, as a theme. In Psalm 7, these are chapters we've already gone through. In, through the years in our psalm study, in Psalm 7, verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Notice 15. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Verse 17, this psalm closes with these hopeful words, 
I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to, his, to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Even when the enemy surrounds us with this mischief and this evil and his arsenal turned against the Lord and his anointed. Where do we find hope? We find hope in the sovereignty of God to use the very tools that were meant to destroy us as the suicide weapon for the wicked one. If we turn over to Psalm 34, again, these words are repeated. We not only see in the context of the Psalms these ideas and concepts poetically demonstrated, but we see them in the historical record of the Scriptures as well. And if you turn to other portions in the history of God's people, you'll find uh, psalms like this actually being applied and being experienced in the circumstances of their very day and hour. Verse 21 of Psalm 34. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Turning over a page, Psalm 35, verse 8. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his own destruction. A Psalm 37, verse 15. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. This morning during, during morning prayer, I commented on this passage, one of my favorites in Psalm 94. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, verse 12, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Later on it says, Can wicked rulers be allied with you, verse 20, who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Another news story that might have caught your attention of late. North Korea, godless regime wants to flex its international muscles by acquiring a nuclear weapon and then firing it into space or somewhere or whatever. And so, you know, pretty soon everyone is, in, uh, is, is concerned about what might happen if this lawless re regime gets these nuclear weapons and, and sends this missile or this uh, satellite into space. Imagine a circumstance where you're watching, um, fearful and sweaty, you know, looking at Google Earth as you see a small poof of smoke and a missile is launched straight up, uh, you know, halfway across the world. And, and now you just look at your watch and you imagine a countdown. So many miles that this missile will travel until it explodes, no doubt, in a nuclear blast in your city. But, is that, but as you watch, you see something interesting happen indeed. The missile goes straight up, straight up. It never levels off. Higher and higher until the forces of gravity finally overcome its remaining fuel and it takes a total U-turn. This missile begins to plummet exactly along the path that it first traveled. What happens? The entire city is decimated and the country is virtually blown off the map as these nuclear weapons fall on their own head. Did you have cause to be concerned? Not if you knew the future. The power of our God can do this sort of thing. 
Men worry and fret that God does not control the future. It doesn't matter the nuclear proliferation that happens all over this globe. Ultimately, the rising and falling of kings is in the hand of our sovereign God, and no nuclear weapon will ever wrest the sovereignty from our God's grasp. Not a single one, not a million. This is the truth that we can rest on in our uncertain world and circumstance. God controls the future. Yes, there are things that we can do uh, to prepare and to pray, and all of that is warranted. But let's take a model, or let's take a cue from David in his model prayer in Psalm 57. While we honestly confess our desperation, where do we turn for certainty? We look to Him. We look to Him alone. Now, I mentioned to you that in history itself, these circumstances are recorded within the Bible. One of them is in David's own experience. And actually, it took place exactly around this time. Where is David as he sings this? We imagine him in the cave of Adullam. What happens as the chapters in 1 Samuel begin to unfold? Well, listen to 1 Samuel 24. When David returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Here's the situation. David is hiding in a cave again, and now Saul's entered this cave, but he's done so unsuspecting. Verse 4, And the men of David said, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it, seem, as it shall seem good to you. Imagine them whispering in the distance as they see Saul at the mouth of the cave. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart was struck. Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. He later tells him, Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. What I want you to notice is how the devices of Saul were turned against him. The tables were turned. David is hiding, fearful, in a cave. All of a sudden, his enemy is delivered into his hands. He had the opportunity, though he didn't have the word of God, to actually destroy him, but instead he takes a piece of his robe. David's position in that moment changed from exile and defense to ambush in a single moment. How could this happen? This can happen because God controls the events and God is ultimately in charge. And in this moment, God showed David that he was powerful to deliver his enemy into his hand. And David had one less reason to fear that day when he showed Saul that he was protected and there was no way, no matter how many weapons and how many men Saul could ally against David, there was no way he was going to halt God's plan to set his man on his throne in his time. Finally, this morning, David's path from affliction to awakening was marked by doxology or worship. As David continues in his song, we do see that escalating theme from desperation to high praise. Be exalted, O God, he sings. He interjects in verse 5. O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. This is right in the midst of speaking about the enemy and his arsenal. Teeth, spears, swords, devouring, a wicked danger. 
But David interjects with an exaltation that uh, acknowledges God's power above the heavens and cries for his glory to be over all the earth. Verse 6, he describes this net that is set for him, but he sees in faith an expectation for it to be reversed. And then there's the Selah in this final section, 7 through 11. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, my ha- O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. David stirs himself awake, and under these conditions, his attention and the clarity of heart and mind is brought to an acute focus. Sometimes God's sovereign purpose in trials, in difficulties, in dangers, to do exactly this, to call us out of the stupor and laziness, the lackadaisical sense of uh, whatever our posture might be, not being in tune and, uh, and unified with the Lord and His purposes. When we are surrounded by our enemies, sometimes it's for the very purpose that it served for David to awaken our hearts and to jar the slumbering church in America, for instance, awake from her lethargy to be once again about the business of praying and steadfastly declaring the word of the Lord and uniting our heart and energies to His desire to let His glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Oh God, let this be the case in our land this day. Though we are in the midst of lions and fiery beasts, Lord, I pray that this condition would serve to awaken us. David is awakened, not just to be aware himself, but also to awaken, he says, the dawn. Awake my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. The sense here is that David is going to bring the message of attention and God's glory beyond this place. He says in verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. You see, his position of retreat and fear is totally reversed now. He's awake, alert, and active, and now he's the aggressor. I will go, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. David has recognized that his warfare, the weapons of his war, the primary ones are not carnal, but instead they're mightier to the pulling down of strongholds. And he will bring the praises of God's sovereign power beyond this little cave to the nations, to the peoples. This is the power of God's word. And this is the Holy Spirit's, the evidence of the Holy Spirit's influence on the soul to turn a situation of despair and cowardly defeat and fear into one of bold proclamation of Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, and no one and nothing can stand in His way. And if I give my life in the service of the declaration of that message, I don't give it at all because I have eternal life. Indeed, it is just a momentary change in my state only to be welcomed into His presence forever. What have we to lose? David recognizes nothing, yet everything to gain. With Paul, he confesses with his prayer for me to live as Christ, so to speak, and to die is gain. Only let him be made known among the peoples and among the nations. This is the glorious and the triumphant expectations that fill David's heart, even though he is in one of the lowest places in his entire career as a magistrate, life as an individual you could possibly imagine. 
What is the source of this heart change? It is the Spirit of God through His Word and in worship that brought His perspective to the reality of the God that He served and emboldened Him to proclaim the truth beyond this cave and even to the nations. This morning, on a hunch, I did a web search of Wycliffe Bible Translator's website. Did you know these very words in Psalm 57 are now read, if not sung, in 550 languages? When David wrote, I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Could he have known that this day, 2016, there would be these words recorded, sung, proclaimed, and treasured in 550 languages? Furthermore, could he have known, could he have realized the power of his mighty God that he testified to in faith would tangibly fulfill these words by 1,300 more languages having the New Testament translated in their tongue and various portions of the rest of Scripture? David was prophesying of a day that we realize even now where 2,300 languages as we speak have active translating work going on within their borders and culture, and only 1,800 languages yet in waiting. The Word of God is going forth among the peoples and among the nations. The Psalms of David are being sung in the furthest corners of the, of the, of the habitations of this planet. And David's doxology is being echoed from sea, just as he prophesied glorifying God over all the earth, even as the waters cover the sea. Finally, and in closing this morning, David's path from affliction to awakening is marked by this shape and overarching theme, from grave to glory. Or you could say, just a few creative ways to say it, from cave to crown, or from pit to preeminence. You'll notice in the shape of David's life and testimony, there was a moment where he was exiled in the earth. He was in a cave. He was doomed. He was dead to rights. But the circumstance would change. God would intervene with saving power to fulfill his promises and resurrect, in a sense, David from this circumstance unto ruling and reigning. He would go from cave to crown. He would go like Joseph from pit to preeminence. He would go like Jonah from the depths of the sea to the proclamation of the gospel to the pagans of Nineveh and see this whole city, state, come to faith in the one true God. He would go from tomb to the right hand like David. There would be the son of David, I should say. Who would go from the tomb to the right hand of the father. He was dead but three short days, but when that stone was rolled away, he became the most victorious warrior history will ever know. You talk about the devices being turned on the enemy. The defeat of Satan that he thought he gained over God's own son when he slew him on that cross proved to be his worst nightmare and the end of his rule and reign over the hearts of you and I. 
The devices of Satan were turned 180 on his head. And the shed blood of Jesus Christ was the destruction of the wiles of the devil. He went from tomb to throne in three short days and then the 40 that followed in the ascendancy and so on. This is the power of God. This was revealed in shadow form in David's life and ministry. But it comes into the foreground and glorious fulfillment in the work of Jesus Christ. The redemptive shape of Psalm 57 foreshadows the eternal, redemptive, historical significance of the rolling away from the stone of the mouth of the cave or tomb which sheltered Jesus for those three days of death. And at this point, the son of David turned the tables on the enemy. Turn over to Hebrews 7.26. As he rose from the dead as conqueror over death itself. In Hebrews 7.26, we read in our text last week these words, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What did David cry out in Psalm 57? He cried out that God would be glorified, that His glory, the exalted God, would be seen as such over all the earth. He said, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, in verse 5. He repeated himself in glorious refrain and conclusion crescendo in Psalm 57, verse 11, by saying, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And we see the refrain picked up yet again in Hebrews' glorious fulfillment that the Son of David is now exalted above the heavens where he rules and reigns and puts all of his enemies under his feet and intercedes for you and I on our behalf. And because he has done so, we will join him in triumph. Praise his holy name. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, what glorious truths are recorded in Scripture for us. We build our lives on them. We confess that they are the standard upon which the firm foundation of our hope rests. We declare that you are glorious and worthy of praise. Lord, we confess anxiety, fear, when we have suffered under the travail of this life's trials and circumstances. Lord, we pray that you would change our hearts and align and awaken our souls to the reality that we see displayed in Psalm 57 where despair turns to glory in just a few short phrases as we remind ourselves that you rule and reign, that you turn the enemies against themselves, and you exalt yourself over this whole world, even as the waters cover the sea, and testify to your great name through the proclamation of your word on the lips and in the hearts and lives of your people. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be motivated by this message to have great courage and hope in our own trials and also to proclaim courage and salvation and hope to those who suffer as though they had none and who grieve as those who have no hope because they have not met Christ. We pray that you would lead us to those this week who would be called from the cave to sit with Christ, Lord, in heavenly places as they give their hearts and lives to him and trust in his shed blood for their salvation. Lord, we thank you for the glorious truth that we find in the scriptures. 
We pray that you would write it on the tablets of our hearts as we leave this place for your glory and namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.